You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Uh, my special guest is writer and author Bronwyn Dickey. We're going to talk to Bronwyn a little bit about her book, Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon. So it's a great book, a lot of history, a lot of background about our uh, wonderful pit bulls and everything else in the world. And then uh, also we'll talk to Bronwyn uh, a little bit about her writing and her writing styles as well. So it's going to be a fun show, very interesting topic, and very interesting conversation. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after these commercial breaks. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. It's hard to find time for your furry family member. That's where Camp Bow Wow comes in. All day play and overnight camp, daycare and boarding for dogs. Everything is included. Large play areas for fun and exercise. Spacious cabins, comfy cots, even live camper cams to watch from a computer or smartphone. Camp Bow Wow offers the best care and is the place to go where a dog can be a dog. For locations and more information, visit CampBowWow.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. It's your host, Tim Link. And joining me now is writer and author Bronwyn Dickey. Bronwyn, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Now, wonderful book, Pitbull, The Battle Over the American Icon. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book and how, it, how you came to uh, write the book. What uh, enlightened you to do so? Sure. It started for me pretty much back in 2008. I had never really been around pit bulls. I grew up in the 1980s and was very afraid of them. I was very aware of all the scary stories in the media. And every time I saw one, I I pretty much crossed the street. I didn't want anything to do with them. Then I was reporting this piece in North Georgia, actually, up on the Chattooga River. And the director of the Chattooga Conservancy, who is a good friend of mine, he had a black pit bull. And I went over to his house for dinner and she climbed up in my lap. And that was that. (laughs) She was this amazing dog that was so sensitive and interesting. And so I started wondering if she was an outlier or if maybe kind of these stereotypes I had in my head needed to be re-examined a little more. So I started looking into it. I looked into the history and the science, and I saw that people in the animal sciences were saying all these headlines were more hype than fact, and that they were kind of outdated, and we needed to rethink how we how we thought about those dogs. So then in 2010, I adopted my own sheltered dog who, that was labeled a pit bull and became even more interested, and everything just kind of went from there. There you go. Got to like that. So it's fascinating. You grew up, I think, like most people, uh, you know, with that perception that pit bulls were uh, a bad breed, a dangerous breed. And uh, I know I was talking about this the other day. You know, it seems like there's a lineage through time. And what I mean by that is growing back up in the my days, obviously, I've got a few years on you. We won't say how many. But, not too uh, many, I'm sure. Not, I'm hoping not. I'm hoping not. But, you know, it used to be sort of, you know, German shepherds had the bad rap. And then it was uh, Doberman pinchers and then Rottweilers. And now pit bulls seem to be the one that's catching all the grief. Did you uncover any of that history in doing your research? Because pit bulls go way back in time. Sure. And those 
kind of cyclical panics go back way, way further than the 70s and 80s, which is when most people are most familiar with them. I was finding dog panics that went back to the 1870s, to the 1850s, even some that went back to the 1700s in England. So there had always been kind of the the bulldog and the the pit bull have always been a little bit controversial. There have always been people who absolutely loved them and there have always been people who who really didn't like them or were afraid of them. And that more has to do with the people they were associated with. But other dog panics have cycled through for hundreds of years. There was a Spitz panic in New York in the 1870s. Editorials in the New York Times were saying that the Spitz was the most poisonous creature in America and that they should all be exterminated. It was thought that the Spitz was somehow uniquely susceptible to rabies. For a while, the Dachshund was actually mistreated severely during the First World War. It was thought to be sneaky and treacherous. I mean, there were all these kind of cycles that were really, really fascinating to learn about, and they weren't always a scary breed. That's amazing. Yeah, the, the, the vicious, venomous Dotson, you know. <laughs> you know those, That's right. You know, you know treacherous. That's treacherous right. dog in the world. Now, I, I have to say, I, I pride myself on knowing a lot about animals and dogs in particular, but I think you got me on that one. So good research on that one. I've never heard of that <laughs> in my life. So that's amazing. Yeah, there was actually a point at which dachshund breeders tried to rename their dogs Liberty Pups. It was really sad. <laughs> Just trying to change the name, nobody will notice. Oh, my That's goodness. Right. My goodness. So then tell us a little bit about what you found out about pit bulls, not only um, how they came about getting sort of this reputation today, and then sort of you did a lot of research on going back in time and all the various uh, you know, famous people that have actually had pit bulls as their family pets. Yeah, so many of us are kind of aware that Petey from The Little Rascals was a pit bull, and Helen Keller had a whole lot of different types of dogs, but one of them would certainly be a dog we call a pit bull today. But also Gary Cooper, Andy Devine, all these silent film stars, Teddy Roosevelt, there were just so many pit bulls that had played a really cool role in history. They were at the Battle of Gettysburg. There were bull terriers at Normandy sniffing out snipers. They were just kind of everywhere. And the history of that was, was so fascinating to me. But again, everything that goes up kind of is doomed to fall down, I think, I think as well. So they had this like meteoric rise in the early part of the 20th century. And then towards the 50s, 60s, 70s, things started kind of careening downhill pretty fast. Fascinating, very fascinating, and I think you know a lot of people uh, aren't familiar with that history. At least uh, where they've been and ha- what actually the impact they've made on American American culture as well. Yeah, and that was you know that was a sad thing. But I think if there's one thing that I picked up about the the history of the dogs over time is that their story is such a quintessentially American story. You have to have the high highs, and then you have to have the low lows but they've stuck it out. They've been here forever, and they probably always will be. There you go. So now when you adopted your uh, your baby, did you go in there purposely <laughs> looking for a pit bull or pit bull-type mix due to your research and, and your fondness you've grown for them, or was it uh, more one just grabbed your heart and you knew that was going to be it? It was kind of both. I think I w- we were certainly open to getting a pit bull because of all the research I had already done and having this very good experience with one, but the dog that we actually went in there to look at had already been adopted. So we assumed we just, you know, that maybe there wasn't a dog there for us. And then there was this kind of other little pit bull who was 
shy and kind of trembling in her kennel. And she looked at my husband especially, but she looked at both me and my husband with this kind of intense curiosity. And I think we both, we both just knew. Yeah, they tend to have that. Uh, I find that over and over. I mean, I've written about it and written articles about it as well. And the fact that you know animals tend to find us. And uh, one of those is when you go into a, a rescue or shelter and you're, you're looking for a particular one that you saw online or you heard about. Right. Or a particular breed. And then all of a sudden you walk out with something maybe totally different because that was definitely the one that was meant to uh, catch your heart and uh, come into your family. It's true. I really never would have, you know, if I had seen her picture, I never would have thought that she would be the dog we ended up with. And then there you go. Here we are. Here you are. (laughs) Now, I know in the book you talk about, you know, uh, going back in the, say, the 19th century, New York City, dog fighting. Can Mm -hmm. you compare or sort of give a reference to the fact of what was happening back then? Was it the norm? Was it acceptable out in public or was it in the dark confines of the back alleys when they had this fighting compared to maybe what you've encountered today? And, and of course, we're, we're making sure. strives and improvements in that area. But Very uh, much. Yeah. yeah, it was more accepted then than it is now, certainly. But it was always seen as something that was kind of seedy, almost the way that like men going to strip clubs or something would be kind of viewed today, you know, not horrendously aberrant, but really not something that respectable people did. But it was certainly more common in the 19th century. And there were always a number of people, you know, who were kind of higher class that would sometimes go slumming and go to the dog pits in New York City. But now, especially since, well, over time, basically, it's decreased steadily. But then when dog fighting was made a felony in 1976, then that was when everything started really kind of grinding to a halt. It still exists today, of course, you know, as we're all well aware. But fortunately, the cruelty investigators that I interviewed for the book, they were all in agreement that they're seeing fewer and fewer cases of it every year. That's good. And do you think it's because we brought it to the consciousness and the laws have become tougher? Or possibly when they do encounter it, is it even more hidden? Are they taking it even deeper to underground? I think it's both. I think one... People who have seen the brutality of it up close are almost universally rejecting it. And that's, that goes for, you know, there's kind of this stereotype that poorer urban neighborhoods are somehow rife with dogfighting. And there may have been a big spike in urban dogfighting in the early and mid-90s. But even that is instances of that are dramatically decreased. Um, I think more and more people are just rejecting it. And of course, after the huge Michael Vick case in 2007, people have pretty much uniformly rejected it. There are much stiffer penalties for dogfighting. There are much more rigorous investigations of it. Law enforcement puts a lot more effort into kind of snuffing those, those operations out. Thank goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. I, we've talked about it on this show as well as I've written about it as well. Uh, you know, being here in Atlanta and when uh, Michael Vick was quarterback for the Atlanta right. Falcons, you know, we were on the courthouse steps or the the state senate steps, I should say, for years trying to get more uh, anti-tethering laws and dogfighting laws and things of this sort under control. And though that incident was horrific, uh, amazingly enough, the year after it happened, all the laws here in this state, at least, started coming into play that would protect the animals. So I guess it's from Mm -hmm. uh, something terrible came something good. So we'll take that. 
All right. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back to, uh, after the break, talk to Bronwyn Dickey about her book, uh, Pitbull, a little bit more about that. It's also, I'll talk to you a little bit about her writing styles uh, and how she became a writer and what drives her every day. So it's going to be fascinating conversations. Everybody just hang tight. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Retrievers, Labradors, Goldens are the main breeds that come through our door, but we'll train anything with four legs and a tail. My husband and I own a kennel. We train hunting dogs and also have a boarding and grooming business. Our dogs, they're athletes, and we feed them very quality food. You can't get enzymes in a commercial dog food because they cook it at such a high heat that so much important nutrition is just cooked right out of it. But adding Dynavite to their diet has every single dog in my kennel looking better than they have ever looked. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. If you want the dog to be healthy, you got to feed it something healthy. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E. <laughs> Dynavite's the bomb. 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Dynavite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining me now is uh, writer and author Bronwyn Dickey. Uh, we're talking about her uh, latest book, Pitbull, Battle Over an American Icon. Now, Bronwyn, when everybody goes out and picks up a copy of this book, which they should, whether they're pit bull lovers, dog lovers, or just really want to know more about the history of the breed and all the uh, many aspects it's had in our American culture, once they read this, what would you like them to take away? What would be a key aspect that you say, hey, I've done my job if they got this out of the book? Well, I hope, especially since the people who probably feel that they strongly dislike the dogs, I've certainly gotten a lot of feedback from people on that side of the fence who seem to feel that writing about them or studying them at all is some kind of implicit endorsement that the dogs are better or that they can never be dangerous or that they're ultra or, you know, that everyone should go get one or something like that. And I hope people understand that it really is just an investigation of the role this animal has had in our culture, both positive and negative. And when it comes to things like when we are confronted with like scary headlines about horrible injuries or very rare fatalities or things like that, part of the reason I wrote the book was that I wanted to do more of a scientific investigation into those incidents and see what kind of led up to them and what the factors were so that we can prevent them. 
So I hope people will see that I really did the very best I could. And I worked very hard for a long time to investigate this subject as thoroughly and as rigorously and as fairly as I possibly could. Yeah, absolutely. And that I think you're spot on with that. So big kudos on the book and how you came about doing it. Because, you know, obviously it's it's been a popular topic. Thank goodness we've been getting more and more exposure for our wonderful pit bulls and getting the message out there. But I think your book does a great job of giving all aspects of it. You know, it's not just focusing on the, the fighting aspects and, and the, the dangers or non-dangers of the breed. It really goes back into a full history and account. And I think you've done an excellent job with that. Yeah, and I hope it'll kind of make people aware that we really do, you know, being a dog owner is a tremendous responsibility, and we do have to keep our neighbors in mind, and we can't just let our pets menace people. We really we really do have to be respectful of the people around us, and too, not just because we owe it to ourselves, but because we owe it to our dogs. It's their life that's on the line when something goes wrong. That's right. That's right. Good comments. I like that. Now, one question, last question about the book specifically. How long did it take you to write this? When you got that epiphany, I know you mentioned that, hey, I need to investigate this a little bit further to when it actually came about. Yeah, so I started kind of looking into it originally back in 2008. So I've been researching it totally for about seven years, but I was working on the book full time and reporting and writing full time for four years. Yeah, and that's amazing because that, and it shows, you know, that's what it takes to, to do good journalism and good research. You know, you can't just simply uh, you can write about topics that you're familiar with, but actually if you're going to go into a deep history and deep account of a, a particular topic, uh, that's how long it takes you, right? <laughs> it was pretty wild. Yeah, I think I traveled through 15 states and I interviewed over 350 people. So I'm sure I probably did a lot more work than I needed to do, but that was kind of where I needed to be to, to feel that I had the authority to write about any of this stuff. There you go. Good deal. Well, then let's talk about your writing in general. Obviously, you've written for uh, you know Oxford Americana. You've done New York Times. You've been out there, Newsweek, et cetera, et cetera. How did you first get involved in writing? Is this something you've been a natural at and loved to do since you were a small no. child, or is this something <laughs> that just sort of happened over time? Now, my father was a writer, and my brother is a writer as well. My brother's much older, so I was kind of always aware that it was something you could do, but I really never thought that I would do it. I always kind of, because there were writers in my family, I always wanted to go off and do my own thing that had nothing to do with writing. But then in 1997, my father passed away, and I was 15. And one of the things that kind of helped me through that process was writing about what it was like. It kind of helped make that whole, I guess, that whole experience kind of linear in a way. So I started kind of looking at writing as something that didn't have to be, you know, I didn't have to write, go write the great American novel or live up to some huge reputation. I I looked at it as a way to kind of investigate the world and just kind of went on from there. Yeah, and I think you're you're spot on with that. You know, it's it's a cleansing mechanism a lot of times. Whether you're talking about writing fiction or nonfiction, it really is. It helps you heal, helps you get your message out there, helps you sort of cleanse what you're thinking of. And um, like you said uh, before, uh, getting calls and letters and writing and emails and things from people that your message actually hit home with. Yeah, that's a really powerful thing. I mean, to be able, there's so few times, despite all the kind of interconnectedness of social media and stuff now, there are so few times that people are able to communicate in an intimate way with each other. And when you when you work on a story or when you work on a piece, 
you're kind of sending this message in a bottle out to the world and you get these amazing responses from people who that resonated with. And that's a, a really, really powerful thing. But trust me, there's there's no natural talent involved. I work very, very hard. I probably work about 400 times harder than any other writer I know. It just takes me so long. <laughs> that's okay. It, it pays off. The, the proof's in the pudding. So uh, you do great work Thank with you. that. Well, then I, let me ask you, as comparison, putting together a, a book, especially a detailed research book like uh, Pitbull, compared to writing an article, even if it's writing for a, you know, a, a well-known publication like Newsweek, how do you compare the two or how do you prep the two or is it more of you do tons of research no matter what you're going to be doing? I always do tons of research no matter what I'm writing about, but at no point did I understand fully how how much work and how many hours and just how much kind of how much I would be emotionally and psychologically and even physically drained by the process of writing a book. There are no, no amount of articles can really prepare you for that. And I think the big lesson for me was that the only way out is through. You just have to, you know, kind of put your head down and steam forward and keep going and teach yourself along the way. There's really only one way to learn and that's to do it. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on with that. I know that's sort of my writing style. You know, I, I don't think I was ever born or thought I was born to be a writer, and never thought it would be part of my offerings of what I do. But once you put your head down to it, and you start putting it down a paper, and you start to see it come to life, and then of course with a book, editors go through it about a dozen times, and you get deflated, and then all of a sudden it's looking good again. But once you've finally seen that final book on the shelf or in your hand, isn't that quite amazing? It is really amazing. It's and I'm very proud, but of course me being me, I'm always like, Oh, you know, is there one one more point I could have made? Is there one more person I could have spoken to? But I think that's just kind of how most writers look at things. <laughs> well I think it is. You know, you, you put your heart and soul to this, so you want it to be the best possible and I think when you put it out there there's always little things you wish you could have uh, looking back on it, wish you could have tweaked or, you know, a fan sure. said, you know, I love your book, but you know, why didn't you tackle this or why didn't you expand on that? And you're right. like, and then you smile and you say, well, that's for the next book, honey. Don't worry about yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> or I look forward to your book. Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. I can't wait until you do that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Let me yeah. read your book ahead of time and then maybe I'll put a little testimonial on there, a little kudo for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's – I like – I'm right. I'm still on that one for you, Bronwyn. I'm going to write that one the next time. Oh, Yeah. Sort of like, oh, yeah, you write a book. No. That's right. That's right. You tackle it. You tackle it. You tackle that in your next book. That's right. And if you do a better job than I do, then I'll just say, well, bless your heart. (laughs) Absolutely. Good on you. Good on you. I like that. Well, where can uh, fans pick up a copy of the book and more importantly, find out what's going on with you and your interviews and events and book signs and all the wonderful things that go on to uh, being a new author or having a new book out there? Yeah, everything is on my website, pretty much. I also have an author page on Facebook and I'm on Twitter, so you can find me pretty much everywhere. The good thing about having an unusual name is that you don't have to sift through like 500 Bronwyn Dickies. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, I, my name's Tim Link, and you'd be amazed how many times that gets misspelled. It's like, yeah, that's pretty easy. <laughs> hey, that's all right. As long as they're looking for us out there, we can't complain. That's right. right. That's right. So everybody go out and pick up a copy of the book. The book's called Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon, Bronwyn Dickey. Bronwyn, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on all your wonderful success. We're going to look forward to uh, tracking all your activities and looking forward to speaking to you again somewhere down the road. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of the show today. 
want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I also thank our producers and sponsors for making this show possible. If you have any uh, comments, ideas, or anyone you want to see on this show, please email me. Email me at tim at petliferadio.com. And I'll be glad to entertain your comments, answer your questions, and bring on the people you want to hear from most. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life, put it in a blog, article, or in a book, and who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.